Well, I've entitled the sermon this morning, A Challenge to Converts. A Challenge to Converts. Because it's been said that the church has converts, but may not really have disciples. And what is meant by that is the the church is full of people who profess faith in Christ, but not necessarily full of people who are following hard after Christ in this world. People who seek to be like Christ in this world. People who long to learn and apply what Jesus taught us in this world. People who seek to love like Jesus loved and serve like Jesus served and pray like Jesus prayed and advance the kingdom in the way that Jesus advanced the kingdom here in this world. Converts don't necessarily do those things, but disciples do. Converts fall away when things get tough, when being a Christian is neither beneficial nor convenient. Converts don't stick. Disciples do. Disciples keep following Christ no matter what. And so you and I, all of us in this room this morning, we need to be disciples and not merely converts. We need to be prepared and ready to stick when things get tough. We need to be prepared to keep following when it's not easy or beneficial to follow Christ in this world. And so the passage that we have before us this morning, it challenges the idea that Christianity is convenient or safe or easy in this world. And so how will you and I respond to the challenge? We must be real disciples of Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. And when you found your place in Matthew chapter 2, I want to ask you to stand and we'll hear read the word of the Lord together. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, this is the word of the Lord. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word, all of it, the truth of it. 
what you revealed to us in your word about yourself and about who we are and about the realities of the world in which we live. So now, Lord, we submit ourselves to the truth of your word, the reality that it presents to us. Father, I ask that because we are here together in your word, empowered by your spirit, we will live as faithful disciples in this very real world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In this passage, Matthew brings us more interruption. I know we've been in and out during the holidays, but this is what Matthew has been doing to us and to his readers from the very beginning, bringing us interruptions. In chapter 1, he interrupted with a big dose of grace the legalistic idea of his day that a perfect spiritual pedigree is a prerequisite for pardon and acceptance by God. The grace of God made it possible for notorious sinners like Rahab the prostitute to be in the family tree of Jesus right alongside those hailed to be the shining super spiritual superstars like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so God's grace was a welcome interruption. And then Matthew moves to the story of how God interrupted Joseph's otherwise well-planned-out life. Because God had a bigger purpose for Joseph than Joseph ever had imagined for himself. And God had big power to accomplish that purpose. So instead of fighting against this interruption, instead of ignoring it, pretending it didn't happen by faith, Joseph embraced this interruption of God and the beautiful privilege of being the earthly father of Jesus. A beautiful story. Then Matthew tells the story of the wise men and how that star interrupted their lives. There it was, suddenly. And their lives were changed forever. And these wise men had a new purpose. They sought Jesus. And when they found him in Bethlehem, the longings of their heart were satisfied. They worshiped Jesus and they gave to him lavishly. Beautiful story. And so we're drawn in to Matthew's beautiful stories. And we're set to singing. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. That's a perfect song for converts, isn't it? Peaceful, beautiful, star-filled, dreamy. If only it could stay this way. But Matthew knows the disciples need to know that it doesn't stay this way. The peaceful, dreamy silence does not last in this world. And so with the passage we have before us this morning, this crisp, bright, star-filled sky is interrupted as dark clouds begin to form. And our song 
is interrupted abruptly. Look what Matthew does in verse 11. He ends with this. The wise men offered Jesus gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then immediately in verse 12, he writes, and being warned in a dream. Now that's abrupt. There's no transition here for us between the worship and the warning. There's no preparation, no description of what the wise men did after they worshiped, no description of how they felt, just the word warning. So worship and then warning. Warnings indicate potential danger. So why should the two go together? Why should a warning follow such beautiful worship? What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap? What cost might worship bring? And so now the song becomes complicated for the mere convert. What the danger is, is not made known to the wise men. They are simply warned not to go back to Herod. And so Matthew continues the story and the clouds get darker. The nature of the warning is made explicit to Joseph in a second dream after the wise men left. It's in verse 13. Look there. Matthew tells us that Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph is instructed to take Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt. What? Flee? Seek safety by running? Elude danger? By escaping, vanish, disappear? What? Someone seeks to destroy Jesus' life? This might be one of those Proverbs 3, 5 moments for Joseph. You know Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. See, if Joseph in this moment leaned on his own understanding. If he put all his weight on what he understood about this world, his understanding would not be able to support the weight of the reality that he was experiencing. Because Joseph's understanding understood in the best way it could that this baby he named Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why then should he flee? Who would want to? Who could destroy this son of God? Joseph's understanding understood in the best way he could that Jesus would save people from their sins. Why then should they flee? Who would want to? Who could destroy this Savior from God? Joseph's understanding understood in the best way it could that this child is the fulfillment of the ancient promise of God. Why then should they flee? Who would want to? Who could destroy this son of God? And what about the, the star and the wise men and the gifts and the worship? Why should he flee? Unless Mary and Joseph are way different from every other new mother and father, they had dreams for their baby. They did. And perhaps they thought that with all the dreams and the prophecies and the star and the wise men and the gifts, 
Perhaps they thought because these very prominent men, even called kings, came and bowed before their, their baby and said, this is a king. Maybe they thought that the life of Jesus and their life as his parents would be ever-rising good and ever-rising glory. That the trajectory of Jesus' life and their life would always be upward. Sometimes converts are led to believe the same thing when you profess faith in Christ. Joseph's understanding for the life of Jesus would surely not have been fleeing the land of Israel to escape a crazed and cruel king. Where is the benefit in that? Where's the comfort in that? Where's the convenience in that? See, Mary and Joseph are not going to be able to sing the song of the convert. Instead, they must sing the difficult song of the disciple. And so must we. They will be challenged and must be changed by God's reality. And so must we be. I'm going to pause there for a moment because the feedback is driving me nuts. Can we do something about this feedback? Anybody? Raise your hand. Can you do something about the feedback? Thank you, Fred. It's really driving me crazy. Can you all hear it? It's this buzz. It's driving me nuts. I no longer hear it. I'll keep talking. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that when I've preached it before. Who said that? Thank you. Thank you. Brother, you're going to get your wish. Are, are we back into it now? Oh, that's so much better. Thank you. So here we go. Mary and Joseph, they're saying they cannot lean on their own understanding and neither can we. Because God's reality, we read about earlier this morning in Isaiah, a reality made certain by his bigger and better understanding, it always has to overshadow the reality that we believe or want for ourselves. And so along with Mary and Joseph and every other disciple of Jesus, We've got to follow Proverbs 3, 5 with Proverbs 3, 6, which says, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. See, we acknowledge, we must, that God has the straight path for us, the right path for us, even if it looks to us to be an unpleasant or wrong path. We must acknowledge that whatever God ordains is right. Even if it doesn't seem that Joseph should have to pack up his family and leave, it is right according to the path God has for them and what God ordains. Even if it doesn't seem that God does not miraculously and divinely protect his son, even if that doesn't seem right, it is right. Even if it doesn't seem right that for a time the powers of the world appear more powerful then the fleeing Savior, Son of God, it is right. And even if it doesn't appear that the trajectory of the life of Jesus is downward, downward from heaven to earth, downward on earth to a stable, downward to a manger, downward in running for his life, it is right. It is what God has ordained. And so here's what challenges the convert 
and pushes them toward discipleship. And it's what challenges you and me as well, submitting the way that seems right to us to the way that is right for us according to what God has ordained for our lives. Know that it is not because God is weak or unable to protect Jesus apart from human activity. God is able. And the rest of the gospel of Matthew is going to give resounding evidence that God is able. Particularly when we get to that little part near the end about death not being able to hold Jesus. That little part about the resurrection, how, Jesus, how God brought Jesus back to life. God is able. Never doubt that. But this story gives us a glimpse into the reality of how our world works and what it means for us to be disciples in this world. So we could give these verses a title. And you all know this title very well. We could call these verses that talk about warning and fleeing and destroying, we could call them the empire strikes back. And it's true because the empire does strike back. And what I mean by empire is the empire of the enemy, the empire of Satan. He will strike back. Not for long will he sit silently and watch people come and bow and worship before Jesus and call him a king and give to Jesus the very best they have to offer. The immediacy of the warning after the worship makes that clear. The December 2008 edition, issue of National Geographic, there was a, uh, an article on the excavations of the Herodian. And that was the final burying place for Herod the Great. It was about three and a half miles from Bethlehem. And in the article, National Geographic, the author of the article made this statement. Herod is best known for slaughtering every male infant in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. He is almost certainly innocent of this crime. Michael Grant, a popular writer on historical themes, says that the massacre of these children, he says, this tale is not history, but myth or folklore. Now, that's the comfortable explanation, isn't it? <laughs> Just never mind, it didn't happen. But why would Matthew tell the story if it didn't happen? What would Matthew's motivation be? Why would Matthew go looking for some obscure prophecy in Jeremiah, Rachel weeping for her children, and then make up a story so that he could say, see, Jesus fulfilled this obscure prophecy. Why would he do it? And why would he want to interrupt his beautiful story by, by, by scaring people? And why would he have people disturbed by the one who is supposed to save the world running for his life? And why would Matthew want to cast such doubt and ill feelings on God? Like, how could a good God allow this to happen? The answer is very simple, because the story is real. 
And the story expresses real dynamics in the spiritual world that are worked out in the real world. Matthew tells the story so that disciples will be prepared to live in the real world, not just as converts, but as disciples. And it is at this point which converts become disciples as they lean into the challenges of discipleship, empowered by the Spirit of God and not fleeing from them. It is troubling, but true, that Satan has a kingdom, and it's real. It's troubling, but it's true that Satan has a kingdom, and, and, and it's real. Scripture says so. Matthew says so. Would you skip over to Matthew, turn over to Matthew chapter 12, if you still have your Bibles open? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, he he writes, Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? See, here it is. An acknowledgment from Jesus himself, that Satan has a kingdom. Jesus continues, look in verse 28. But if by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see? Jesus is talking about two kingdoms here. And those kingdoms are in conflict. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that that. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Two kingdoms, right? We are in the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And Jesus transferred us into the kingdom of light. That's why worship leads to warning because of the battle and the conflict. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this, Now is the judgment of this world Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Two other times in the upper room, Jesus refers again to Satan as the ruler of this world. At the end of the Last Supper, when Jesus is praying, he prays this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why would Jesus pray that for us? If evil were not real, And if we did not need to combat it in this world. The Apostle John writes this in his first letter. Chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, I don't have time to linger on this verse. I wish I did. But think about this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What's incorporated by the whole world? You think about it. What areas? Business, art, entertainment, science, all those parts of the world. Think about them. And think about your involvement in them as a disciple of Christ. And realize that Satan has power and influence in the whole world in every area. You think about that. Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Satan 
is the prince of this world. But remember this. He's just a prince. A prince who will never be king. You know, Prince Charles may be frustrated. (laughs) He's not king yet. His mother's 91. She's still going strong. But even though her mother, his dear granny, lived to be 101, right? (laughs) Queen Elizabeth may do the same. Still, Prince Charles has this hope, right? One day, I will become king. Satan has no such hope. (laughs) And here's why. Because Jesus is the king of kings, and he will never die. And he will never abdicate. Is that good news? So as Martin Luther reminds us in his hymn, his kingdom is forever. So the prince of this world has no hope of ever becoming king. And that's why he's so angry and that's why he's so frustrated. And that's why he always strikes back. As Luther puts it, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But he is ultimately a defeated enemy. And so Luther says, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. And that's why he rages now more than ever. So it should be really telling for us. That Jesus acknowledges the kingdom of the evil one because he experienced the reality of it. The apostles, John, Peter, Paul, Matthew, they all write of the kingdom of the enemy because they experienced the reality of it. Martin Luther, 1,500 years later, writes of it because he experienced the reality of it. But what about us? You know, the world's different now. They were more fearful, more superstitious. We're so well-educated. We understand the universe and and how it works. Should well-educated people believe this? It seems an appropriate time to quote from a world-admired scholar. (laughs) It's not me, don't worry. (laughs) C.S. Lewis. He writes this in mere Christianity. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who is held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees that the universe is at war. But it does not think that this is a war between independent powers. It thinks that it's a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. Yay, right? You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great 
campaign of sabotage. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, I'm not particular about the hoofs and the horns, but my answer is, yes, I do. Converts might doubt or at least ignore the work of Satan, but disciples cannot. Our enemy is real. He is at work. The apostle Peter tells us he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Matthew makes that clear in his story. And he doesn't present it in such a way that we are mere observers, you and I, of this cosmic contest between God and Satan. We are actively involved in the war. It seems like I've been preaching a long time. I still have a lot longer to go. Not too much. Is everybody good? We're actively involved in the war. And how Satan works and how he rules and how he reigns in this world is through sinful humanity. Herod was a sinful man. Awful man. And pride was one of his greatest sins and it worked itself out in fear and insecurity. And he ordered the massacre of these children because he always eliminated any competitor to his throne. I'm going to just read to you what history says about Herod, not some Christian preacher. This is what history records. Herod was crowned king of the Jews in 40 B.C., When he got to Jerusalem, his first order of business was to eliminate his predecessors, and so he killed 45 leaders of the opposition party in the year 37. He eliminated his brother-in-law, who was at the time an 18-year-old high priest because he thought the Romans might favor his brother-in-law over him as ruler of Judea. He had his mother-in-law executed, no comments, In 28 B.C., the next year he had her daughter, his own wife, executed. Herod killed three of his sons. The first two were strangled in 7 B.C. The last son he had killed only five days before his own death. Herod became extremely paranoid in the last year, four years of his life. In 7 B.C., he had 300 military leaders executed. 300. In the same year, he had a number of Pharisees executed when it was revealed that they had predicted that by God's decree, Herod's throne would be taken from him and from his descendants. That's only part of what he did. It doesn't include all the people that he commanded to have killed when he died so everyone would mourn, not for him, but for those who were killed. Anyway, you get the point. So it's no wonder that Herod would have the babies of Bethlehem slaughtered since the wise men had indicated that he was a king. So this is a disturbing story, but it records for us the reality of the battle that rages between God and the evil one. It evokes questions for us. If God is good, then why? If God is powerful, then why? If God is loving, then why? And the answer is that for now, you and I, live in a war zone of which our enemy is prince and in which the evil he excites, incites exists 
through the activity of sinful human beings. And so we ignore this reality to our own detriment. And if you and I are satisfied with the Christianity that does not include this reality and engage it, then we have little hope of ever making a difference in this place for Jesus' sake. If we don't believe in the reality of this warfare, there's little hope that you and I will use the good news of the gospel to turn hearts of the disobedient and the rebellious, those destined and headed toward eternal death to the mercy and the grace and the love and the life found in Jesus. If we don't believe this battle is real, there's little hope that we will stand guard over our own lives and seek God's strength to live them. Again, Martin Luther says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Listen, we're going to lose if we depend on our own strength. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that might be? Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. And what? He must win the battle. And so Matthew interrupts the pleasantries of grace and worship and giving with the story, the reality of what it means to have Jesus, God incarnate, living on this earth and what it means to be his disciple and follow him in this world. He interrupts our song and reminds us in this world we must do battle, but here is our hope, and then I'm finished. Look in verse 13, right in the middle. The angel tells Joseph, take the child, rise, take the child, his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Remain there until I tell you. See, God has put a limit to the flight and the warning and the danger. It will only last as long as God says so. So the good news is he does not banish this family to Egypt with no hope and forget about them. No, God says, I'll call you. I'll let you know when it's time. And so Joseph can stay in Egypt and tremble not at the danger because he has God's promise. I will send for you. I will not abandon you there. God makes the same promise to us in Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can, what harm can man do to me. Is that good news? It's this promise that makes it possible for us to be true disciples and not just converts. It's this promise, the presence of the Lord, that he'll never leave us, that makes it possible for us to follow hard after Christ in this world, to seek him in this world, to long to learn and apply what he taught in this world, to love in the way he loved in this world and serve in the way he served and pray in the way he prayed and advance the kingdom in the way he advanced the kingdom in this world because of this promise. It's this promise that makes us willing and able to make a difference in this world 
for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. For all of it, thank you, Lord, that it's not just a story of all beauty and roses, but Lord, that you love us enough to tell us the truth about this world and the way it works. Father, this story is evidence of the reality for all of us in this room right now. And that is, while we live this life, Lord, it's a life of battle. So help us just to acknowledge that the battle is real. Allow those troublesome thoughts to come to our mind that we might not ignore them. Because, Lord, we ignore the reality to our own detriment personally and, and then to, to your kingdom. Lord, help us to acknowledge the reality of it and then be encouraged by the good news that you're with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. What harm ultimately can man do for us? We are yours both now and eternally. So pray that you will help us fight the good fight of faith. Lord, take the the truth, the good news of the gospel out into this world where, where sinful people need to hear it. People as sinful as Herod, Lord, none of them are beyond your reach or the reach of the good news of the gospel. So, Lord, help us to acknowledge the battle and to engage the battle for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.